Amen. Well, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 28. As you're turning, have a, I guess, a Bible trivia, a couple of questions to start us out this morning. Which book of the Old Testament is quoted the most in the New Testament? Isaiah. Well, that's a good guess since we're in Isaiah. Um, some believe it may be, but some believe there's a different book that's quoted more. Can you think of Psalms? Okay. Um, I ask you that because this chapter, but more importantly, even chapter 29, seems to have a lot of references that are quoted in the New Testament. Um, I googled the question that I asked you, only I got the answer in the form of the top ten Old Testament books. They're quoted most in the New Testament. Psalms, according to this guy, was quoted 68 times directly. Isaiah 55, Deuteronomy 44. And then it goes down from there. But it, it kind of gives you a, a good indication as to how important the revelation that God gave Isaiah kind of set the foundation or the, the basic operating parameters by which God plans to work. And so he had his um, apostles and the writers of the New Testament quote from it a lot. Probably one of the most often to quote it is the Apostle Paul and we'll be seeing some of that in this chapter as well as the next chapter I found this quote when I did that Google search it says 90% of the New Testament's chapters which are 260, 260 chapters in the New Testament quote from Isaiah's writings so that basically leads to the next sentence. All but 25 New Testament chapters quote from Isaiah directly or indirectly. And I don't know about you, but as we've been going through Isaiah, I've been seeing little things. I'm like, boy, that's familiar. Boy, this is familiar. And part of the reason is, is we're more familiar with the New Testament and they're quoting from Isaiah. Now, how much of Isaiah is quoted is the, what the next sentence is talking about. It says that 30 chapters from Isaiah are directly quoted, some of the information, and then another eight is an indirect inference. And so we'll be looking at that. But I bring that up today because two weeks ago, we covered the simple message from Isaiah 28. There was a sarcastic opening about who's the prophet talking to? Is it children? Why is he doing precept upon precept? And the central, central focal point of that, or the first message that was dominant there, is they're not going to listen, but they're going to therefore be hearing foreign languages. And that kind of brought up the question, in my mind, how often we hear... The scripture talk about language, foreign language. Um, and the first thing that comes to mind is Pentecost, in my mind. 
And then after that, I don't know about you, in fact, I'm kind of curious, how many of you have ever been approached by someone that has thought that tongues were a legitimate gift nowadays? Okay. I'm not saying, do you think that? I'm saying, how, how many have been approached by someone that has that? And I had been looking for a particular verse when I was studying this, but just didn't look for the right word to find it. And when we were in West Virginia, that same question came up in uh, Pastor Matt Decker's church. Someone asked about tongues. He has the same thing. He, he's carried on Pastor Caleb's tradition of ask the pastor. And one of the questions was about tongues. And so I was kind of curious just to briefly rewind and look at that, that passage because it pops up in our current discussions. People want to know, what about tongues? So... One of the things I mentioned just in passing, but I thought was worthy of just a little review, is languages or tongues are a sign of judgment. They aren't a sign of spiritual maturity, which is how when people get involved in that, I think most often it's taught that way. Well, if you have enough faith, if you're mature enough, then you would be talking in tongues. Well, that's not what our Bible says. What's the first place you can think of that talks about tongues? Genesis. Mm-hmm. Okay, Genesis. And I got you know, Corinthians, and it depends on what you think about as to which place you go. But if you think about language in general and different languages, I think you get to the place that Wayne's talking about. Anyone remember any specifics in Genesis? <coughs> Tower of Babel, okay? And just for your edification, that's in Genesis 11. We'll just kind of read that. <coughs> Starting in verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, they have all one language. And this they begin to do, talking about building the tower. And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad on the face of all the earth. And so the first time that God used language as a judgment is at the Tower of Babel, and it was to restrain evil. They were pursuing building this tower, and what was evolved in this tower was astrology and worship of other gods, and God used language to judge them and spread them. Well, the second place that it's mentioned, we've been studying, Isaiah 28, verse 11. It says, For with stammering lips and other tongue will he speak to this people. And that's what we read two weeks ago. 
And if you remember the context, Isaiah is being mocked as bringing a simple message, which was simply to say, trust God, not these alliances with other nations and other peoples, trust God. And the people were mocking him, saying, oh, you're talking like you're talking to children. And he said, well, you won't listen to the simple message, so God's going to speak to you through people of foreign tongues. And it comes in the form of a judgment of them being conquered, the northern kingdom by Assyria and the southern kingdom by Babylon. And so this prophecy that he's talking about here is fulfilled directly in his time through Assyria and Babylon. The next time we see tongues is in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2 is Pentecost. And looking at verses 1 through 4, it says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues as of fire, and they sat upon each one. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so we see that, and I guess the question that gets asked about that is, well, how was that a sign of judgment? Anyone want to answer that one? How was this set of tongues a sign of judgment? Nancy? I'm going to go out on a limb a little bit and say that God was saying that he wasn't going to exclusively speak to the Jews, that the Gentiles would now be included in the kingdom. Exactly. The Jewish people had, had God always speak to them in their own language, except in these isolated cases of where other countries came in, and he spoke through those nations disciplining Israel. Here, just like Nancy said, God was doing what I've always called time out for the Jews, putting them on the shelf. He's not casting them away. He's just simply turning from them for a season and working through the church, which is Jew and Gentile alike. And so, again, this was a sign of judgment. Now, when we talk about tongues and we hear people ask about it today, one of the things that helps to put it in perspective is look at the whole book of Acts. The whole book of Acts, there's only one or two places, this being one of them, I think when Gentiles were accepted, there might have been some speaking in tongues. But you look at all the epistles and other than Corinthians, you don't see tongues being talked about. And the reason is it was a sign of judgment. And so in Corinthians, if you turn over to 1 Corinthians 13, we'll just spend a little bit more time here. Paul is correcting what the Corinthian church was doing with tongues. And most of you, I'm, I'm pretty confident, remember this chapter is about love, about 
love being patient and kind. But in the middle of that, or toward the end, I should say, verse 8, he says, Charity or love never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there, shall, whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. <clears throat> For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. I think many of us have heard it preached from this passage that when the canon of Scripture was complete, further revelation doesn't happen. We don't have people saying, Thus saith the Lord, like the prophets did. And we also are told here that tongues are going to cease. And then in the 14th chapter, Paul is correcting the Corinthians. And this is the chapter that I really wanted to get us to. If you'll turn over a page or two in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20, he says, Brethren, be not children in understanding. So another way of putting it is, let's be mature. Let's grow up as Christians. And I think that's kind of important given the context of how I think tongues is taught by those that believe that tongues are still active today. He says, Howbeit in malice be children, and understanding be men. And so his, his first encouragement to the Corinthians is, you know, let's grow up. Let's be mature Christians. You know, let's not act like children when it comes to maturity. But when it comes to evil, when it comes to malice, yes, be like children. Be naive. Don't be knowledgeable about all the evil around you, but be knowledgeable about the things of God. And then he says, in the law it is written. Anytime I see that from Paul, I start to say, okay, where is he quoting from? And then here's quote with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak to this people and yet for all that will they not hear me saith the Lord where's that come from exactly that was the verse I was looking for two weeks ago couldn't find I just wasn't looking in the right place I kept looking in Acts and so he's quoting Isaiah and then he gives us a little better understanding. And I mentioned it, but I think it's important you see it in God's Word. It says, Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but them that which believe. And so, when you think about today, is God trying to show Israel signed still? The answer is no. He's working and he's drawing them back together. He's about ready. In fact, part of the way we know what God's timetable is is we look to the Jews, look to Israel. And what we see is God is starting to regather them. In fact, he's regathered a lot of them, but there's still a lot more. But they haven't awakened spiritually yet. But he's not showing them the sign because they're going through his judgment already. 
it wasn't that judgment was coming. The sign was God's judging Israel. And so that happened at Pentecost when he turned from them and put them on the shelf to Israel. And so I thought it was important that we just kind of go back and look, where is it quoted? Because Paul explains to us that this sign isn't a sign of maturity. It's a sign that God's judging. And so I personally, in the position of our church and our former pastors and our present pastor, is that the gift of tongues was only for the time as the church was in its infancy and not for today. Mickey, you have a question or a comment? church and in order to be able to do anything in the church even host coffee cup or whatever you had to be able to speak in tongues and that was their rule and I think the, the thing that we need to be very kind and gracious about is that while some have went down that path that's not a biblical path um, the other thing that I've heard, you know, and, and it plays on our emotions is, well, you know, if tongues aren't biblical today, then are they of Satan? Well, I think there's some very honest, sincere people that get mixed up in it because of some of the teachings that some churches have. And... I would say it's more an emotional response. I wouldn't be so black and white to say, oh, it's all of Satan. Now, keep in mind, Satan is the deceiver. And so, to some degree, all of us probably have some areas of deception in our life. Would we say because of that we're living a life for Satan? We'd say no. And so, when it comes to people that are mixed up in this, it's a real difficult thing for them because it's all been wrapped around this idea of maturity. And so if there's hope for them to come out of that kind of deception, it's going to be through you praying from them and being kind to them. Um, And sometimes that kindness comes in saying, well, my understanding of the Bible is this, that this is a sign of judgment, not of, of... my having extraordinary faith or maturity. And so that's part of why I went back to this is because I know we confront that. We see it. And um, some of you may have heard of the title of this book. I got it back in the 70s or 80s, but it was called The Agony of Deceit. I don't remember who wrote it. Don't remember much about the content, but I remember the title. And the reason I did is the same reason all of us, when we find through our culture, our traditions, or whatever, that we've been deceived, it hurts. We don't like the idea of feeling deceived. But that's what Satan's a master of. And so, when it comes to tongues, Isaiah is the reference point that Paul points back to and says, This wasn't a sign to people that believe. It's not 
helping people that believe. It's not a sign of maturity. He mentions it here. He basically is highlighting it's a sign to the unbelieving, particularly the Jews, that God's judgment is coming. Um, and so I thought it might be helpful to you because I know I've been confronted by people that have had tongues to understand the purpose of tongues really was to kind of put up a warning sign that judgment's coming. David? For me, the big mistake is trying to figure out what they're doing. My Bible <laughs> says it's not there. That's where my discussion ends. I don't have to figure out what they're doing, how they're doing it, and I sadly, their, their leadership, famous people around the world are doing it, so therefore, hey, it's got to be. No, my Bible says it's not there. Let's move on. David has a, a key point that I think is important for all of us. The other key point is the aspect of compassion. How do you show compassion? But his key point trumps everything, and that is the Bible said it, we need to believe it, and that settles it. But don't fail to show compassion to those that have been deceived. Uh, it's a hard thing. He brings up the fact there's all these, quote, infamous, and I use infamous instead of famous, people that are supposedly doing it and so they get drawn into that and so the best way to help them is to show them love and kindness but also stand on what God's word says he said that it would cease I believe that has already happened personally John I think as an offshoot of that some of the real danger for the Christian community in general is that things like dreams word of knowledge yeah. Other revelations and prophecies that are, that are being proclaimed. Uh, you know, it comes from that same movement, but I think it's more acceptable for others outside that movement to maybe give credence to them. Yeah, I, I think John's 100% right on that. This is one of the things that opens the door to further revelation, new prophecies, new revelation, um, all of that. My understanding of scripture, what our pastor teaches, what I think most everyone, if not everyone, this auditorium believes, is that when the canon of scripture was completed, tongues ceased, prophecies ceased, new revelation ceased, everything we need is already provided in God's word. And so I thought it would be helpful to everyone just kind of to realize that Paul went back to what we have been studying in Isaiah 28 to correct what was going on in the Corinthian church. And you don't find tongues or further revelation in any of the other epistles. It's only in the Corinthian one where they were misusing it and he's correcting it. So anyway, that was something that I thought would be helpful to you. And I hope it was. A little side rabbit trail but I, I think it's important to realize Paul gives us insights to Isaiah as much as quoting Isaiah especially in this particular case so that brings us <coughs> to verse 
to the next part of Isaiah 28 that was right about where we stopped. Uh, we looked at this particular slide about the cornerstone, Jesus being the cornerstone. And one of the things that was surrounded with is this idea of a covenant with death. Now, obviously, the rulers of Jerusalem would say, we didn't make any covenant with death. But in effect, when they tried to make covenants, particularly with Egypt, and that's what's coming out here is this covenant with Egypt. Isaiah is saying that may as well be a covenant with death. And he also highlights that they're thinking because of this covenant that they're making or planning to make, that they're going to escape judgment. That's their, their whole hope. And he's saying that covenant's going to be abolished. God doesn't recognize it. And judgment will happen. We're going to look at that judgment. But first, we're going to look at the cornerstone. I'm going to give you a couple of quotes, and then we'll go to the New Testament again. First one was in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, which we covered some time ago. And Isaiah, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote, And he shall be for a sanctuary, talking about Jesus, the Messiah, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And so he, he brings up this stumbling stone back in chapter 8. That then brings us to the verse we looked at two weeks ago, which is Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. And so there's that word believeth contrasting against their unbelief, their lack of trust. Isaiah is saying the one that believes, the one that trusts in this cornerstone is not going to go through the same anxiety and haste because of the coming judgment. And then if you turn over to Psalm, well, actually, I'll just put it on here. It's a short verse. Uh, this is Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. And so we see both in Isaiah and Psalms this idea of the cornerstone. This idea of a precious and tried stone. A stone also that is a stone of stumbling for Israel. And so that brings us to the New Testament. New Testament references to the cornerstone. And we're only going to look at two. There might be a few others. The first one, if you'll turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Verse 30 through 33. I think most of us recognize Romans was written by Paul to the Romans. And he's dealing with 
what happened to Israel? What's going on with Israel? And he says, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. So he's talking about the church and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and being saved by what he did on the cross, not by our works. He says, but Israel, and so now he switches his focus to Israel. He says, but Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. And so Israel has the law that God gave to Moses. They have the oracles of God. They have the prophets. And they're trying to attain righteousness by works, by obeying the law. And he says, wherefore... Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. And so here we have Paul quoting from both Isaiah and Psalms, to point out what's going on with Israel. What's going on is when their Messiah came, they were focused on their own good works, thinking that that was their way to please God. And they missed the fact that all that was given in the way of the law, all that was given in the way of the sacrifices, those were to point them to their need for a savior, their need for Messiah. And instead, they felt like, oh, we can earn God's approval through our good works. And Paul's saying, no, it doesn't work that way. Therefore, Messiah became a stumbling block, a rock of offense to them. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, we have the same basic idea. In this particular case, it's talking about how we're um, built into a spiritual house. And so starting in verse 4, To whom coming, as described unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, talking about the Messiah, ye also as lively stones are built up into a spiritual house and holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. And that's a direct quote from our passage in 28. The person that believes on him will not need to make haste. He's quoting and paraphrasing slightly there. But it explains to us what God was saying through Isaiah. This cornerstone is Messiah. And to the Jews, because they thought they could attain righteousness through the works of the law, he's a stumbling block. He causes them to stumble because they're thinking they can earn it. So that catches us up. If you'll turn back to Isaiah chapter 28, we're going to read verses 15, kind of pick up there because 
We didn't cover the judgment that was there. Isaiah chapter 28, verses 15 through 22. I hope our little rabbit trail was helpful to everyone. Uh, but I think it's important we realize how much of what we believe in the New Testament really was started in what God gave the prophets and gave Moses and gave through the law. It's just, it's explained to us. And so as we're going through Isaiah, all of a sudden these things hopefully are kind of leaping out at you. Oh, I've seen that somewhere before. <laughs> Starting in verse 15. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with hell are we in agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass, it shall not come to us. And so this is what they're saying with this covenant is, hey, when this, this judgment comes through, we're not going to be affected. And then he says, for, and this is more of what they're believing, we have made our lives our refuge. And under falsehood have we hid ourselves. <coughs> Therefore saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious stone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet. And the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters shall overflow the hiding place. Notice between verse 15 where they talk about lies are their refuge and falsehood is where they hide. Verse 17 kind of says that's not going to work. You can believe your lies all you want, but they're going to be swept away by the truth. Same with the hiding place. And then verse 18 says, In your covenant with death shall be disannulled or abolished. Your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then ye shall be trodden down by it. From the time that it goeth forth, it shall take you. For the morning by morning shall it pass over, by day and by night. And it shall be a vexation only to understand the report for the bed is shorter than a man can stretch himself on it and the covering narrower than he can wrap himself up for the Lord shall rise up as in Mount Perizim and he shall be wroth as in the valley of Gibeon that he may do his work his strange work and bring it bring to pass his act, his strange act. Now therefore be ye not mockers, lest your bands be made strong, for I have heard from the Lord of hosts a consumption <clears throat> even determined upon the whole earth. And so we have this judgment that he mentions. And in the passage we just read, what What's involved in this judgment? What's going to happen? I mean, we, we mentioned this covenant and how it's abolished. They're thinking they aren't going to be affected by this judgment. What is this judgment going to be like for Israel? 
And really we're talking the southern kingdom. A lot of turmoil. Okay, a lot of turmoil. Definitely that's going to be involved when you think about war. There's a lot of confusion and turmoil. What else? The tribulation. Okay, it's going to be similar to the tribulation, but I think he's talking here more about the immediate judgment coming through the Assyrians and Babylonians. But both are happening. You know, if you think about it, the tribulation is going to be the same way. It's going to be a judgment that they can't escape. Yes? Doesn't it say that their covenant is going to be done away with? Absolutely. It's going to be abolished or done away with. And so the first thing I want you to know, there's no escape. They think their covenant's going to help them to escape. But notice... In verse 19, he says, From time that goeth forth, it shall take you. There's not going to be an opportunity to run. They can't run fast enough. They can't get enough allies and alliances to protect them. It's going to take them. The other thing that's kind of hidden in there, he talks about it'll come morning by morning and pass over and day by and by night. The idea is it's going to come in waves. It's not going to be just one time and it's over. I mean, we can relate to a one time and it's over. Hurricane Ian recently. It came, it went, and it's over. Now, yeah, we're picking up the pieces and stuff like that. This judgment isn't going to be like that. It's going to be like it comes... And it's going to be more like 2004 when some of us were here. We remember three hurricanes. It came. It went. Two weeks later, another one came. And it went. Well, that's kind of how this is going to be. And so he's basically saying to them, you can't escape. But not only that, you may say, ah, I survived. It's over. But there's another wave coming. It's going to be like waves, you know, hitting on the shore. Wayne, is that possibly a reference to what Jesus talked about in Matthew twenty-four about the birthing pains? Um, it's similar, but here I think he's talking about the more immediate prophecy of the Assyrians and Babylonians. Uh, but it, what you find, at least I find in Isaiah, is the same thing you're talking about. There's a parallel. What they're dealing with then is mirrored or just kind of a small sample of the days to come in Matthew 24 and Revelation. Uh, but I don't think he has that in mind personally. I don't see a reference in the New Testament to that exact thing. Um, but to Wayne's point, when you think about this covenant with death they're going to have a covenant with the antichrist but I think here he's talking more about the covenant with Egypt but it definitely has ominous similarities to the future with the antichrist the other thing that he mentions here in verse 19 I think this is kind of what Mickey was getting at he says it shall be vexation. Um, 
I picked a little different word than she did. I picked sheer terror. Um, kind of relates to all the nonsense we see around us concerning Halloween. And they try and do all these scary things and terrorize people that walk through and stuff. Well, in our day and age, that kind of thing is just you know, <coughs> games and nonsense. But in war, there's not only turmoil, but it's terror. There's all sorts of atrocities. And so when these <clears throat> armies come from Assyria and Babylon, it's going to be sheer terror here. Now, verse 20 was kind of interesting to me. It kind of shows God has a way of, of kind of knowing where we live, knowing about things that we deal with. It says there's no rest. Um, he basically is highlighting that with the idea of a bed being shorter than a man can stretch himself. And I thought it was kind of interesting. Um, I think a number of us were at Patsy Horn's memorial funeral service, and one of the um, guys from the funeral home was like about this much taller than me. And I don't remember what brought it up, but he made the comment that he had to go in the hospital and it was real uncomfortable because they couldn't find a bed long enough. And I thought it was kind of interesting that he would bring that up and I was reading this passage where the bed is too short. Now, I've never experienced that much. I mean, a full-size bed, maybe my feet might stick off a little bit, but I can kind of go diagonally provide Brenda doesn't mind too much and uh, and fit on that bed but this guy was tall enough that I imagine they had trouble finding him a hospital bed because they're pretty standard sizes and so I think God knows exactly how to get our attention he says you're not going to have any rest because the bed's not long enough now then he goes and the covering is too too small that he can't wrap himself in it. Now I could relate to this one personally. When we were in West Virginia, it was cold, and some of the blankets were a little too small, and couldn't quite get myself covered up enough to get warm. Now, evidently Matthew and Krista had, had some of that, and Matthew liked this one real soft blanket, and so he bought. It was either king size or queen size one. Man, that thing was nice because you could definitely cover up all the way. Um, and it reminded me of a commercial. I know who puts out the commercial, uh, but I'm not going to say their name because I'm not advertising for them. But I thought their commercial was kind of humorous. They're always touting bigger is better. They show a picture of a man and woman in bed, and one of them rolls over and pulls the cover off the other one. And in the end, they show this monster blanket that's covering the two people in bed. God has a way of bringing it right to where we live here. We know that when we can't cover ourselves, we can't get warm, we don't rest very well. 
when the bed's too short, which I don't know of too many of us that have that problem, but this one guy from the funeral home did, he probably couldn't rest because of the bed being too short. So here, in the middle of Isaiah, he's talking about terror, he's talking about it coming in waves, he's talking about no one's gonna escape, and you aren't gonna have any rest. And all of us can relate to at least one of these two things, making it hard to get to sleep, hard to get rest. And so Isaiah brings that up. And then he mentioned something that I thought was kind of interesting. In the last part of verse 21, he mentions God will do this strange work. And you kind of sit there and you say, what? Strange? And he mentions it twice. If you look at 21, he says, he may do his work, his strange work and bring to pass his act, his strange act. So that brings up this question. Why is this strange? Why would Isaiah say to the people, God's going to do this strange work? Okay, Wayne hit the first point. God has always protected his chosen people in the past. In fact, the first part of the verse mentions Mount Perizim and also the Valley of Gibeon. And in both of those cases, God protected them, but they had godly leaders at that time. And so from an Israelite's point of view, a Jewish person, they would say, well, Surely this can't happen. God's protected this before. Why else would they consider it strange? When you think about God, what do you think of? Love. Probably alongside of that is the idea of mercy. And so, to the Israelites at that time, to us in our day, when we think about God's character, his character is one to show mercy. In fact, I think many of us probably, if we think about it a little bit, remember when Pastor Aaron preached a little while back about God's character. He's almost looking for us to give him an excuse to show mercy. But all too often our pride and our rebellion prevents that. Now, I'm going to end it with why it isn't. Go ahead, John. I was just going to say, James has made an interesting comment. He said that uh, being against his own people's judgment is not what God delights in doing, but it's necessary. Yes. It's strange in the sense that his character is to love, but he recognizes the need for judgment. And John took my last point, which I'm very grateful for. Yeah. He, he kind of brought it out. God's character also is righteousness, which requires judgment. So it's very necessary. And at the same time, God's preference and what he would rather do is show mercy. 
Bob? First John says that God is light, and that means he's perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, and perfectly just. Exactly. And so his righteousness, his justice is perfect, and he made a way to show mercy, which is what we most often like to focus on because we need it most. And Wayne put it in a good way, even as parents, when we look at our children, our first desire is to show them mercy, but there's times we know we need to correct them. And that's what God's doing here. And so it's strange in one respect only, and that is that God has protected them and shown them much mercy beyond what any of us deserve, beyond what they deserved. But there comes a point where he says, this hasn't worked. I need to correct them with judgment. And so it seems strange to them. And so God has defended his people in the past. They asked the question or would ask the question, what about Mount Perizim, or what about Joshua's victory over the Amorites at Gibeon? And the reality is, is that back then they were following godly leaders and God did protect them. Now they aren't. So that brings us to the last part of the chapter, chapter 20, or chapter 28, verse 22 to the end. We'll read that and then we'll just briefly cover that. It says, And now therefore be ye not mockers, lest your bands be made strong, for I have heard of the Lord of I have heard from the Lord of Lord God of hosts a consumption even determined upon the whole earth. And so his, we'll we'll cover twenty two before we cover the rest. He's telling them don't mock. Your judgment could be more severe. If you mock God because that's who gave this, then he can make your bonds even stronger. Instead of being, you know, the plastic cable ties that they use for handcuffs, it could be steel ones and, you know, even bigger. And so the idea is, is you know, be careful what you say about God and his judgment because he can make it worse. The message is from God. Isaiah is highlighting the fact, hey, don't get upset with the messenger. I'm just bringing you what God has said. And the decree of destruction is upon the whole earth. And so no one's going to escape God's judgment. Brother Dalton, did you have something you wanted to say? I saw your hand, I thought, move. Uh, first John. Yes. There is a song in our hymnal that says, The love of God is far greater than the time of pain can ever tell. God has a special love for us. John Jesus Jesus, for God so loved you, but loved God so much as he gave his only begotten son to redeem us God and Jesus And uh, I remember just lately, I was supposed to go someplace to help someone to do something. And I woke up in the morning, and uh, my knee, I could not walk. My knee, a pain just take me in my knee. 
And I remember my first talking about it last night when I was saying, look how good God is. God is not watering uh, where she wanted to go. And I couldn't walk for the whole day. I would uh, put all the Sabbath things in my knee, and the next day I was fine. So sometimes God had a love for us that He take care of us even when we can't take care of us. Yesterday, I remember my wife was just having a good time talking about the love of Definitely, God's love is far greater than anything we can say. And as Brother Dalton points out, God's love even protects us from ourselves. We have ideas of what we want to do. And God's love for us protects us. Sadly, the next passage points out, and we're not going to have time for it, um, it points out that God knows just how to deal with us but each one of us ultimately decides what we do with how we respond to God. And so God's love is extended. It's offered to all. But many <coughs> rebel and reject that love. And when they do, they face judgment. So next week, we'll pick up on the last few verses of 28. I've been reading ahead in 29, as have at least one or two of you. And there's a lot of sections where we'll be showing where it's quoted in the New Testament because I think it's helpful to all of us to kind of realize how much God gave us through Isaiah, set the foundation and framework for what he was going to do in the New Testament. Well, let's close with a word of prayer. Thank you for your attention and participation. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your great love for us and that you sent your Son to die that we might have forgiveness of our sin. Father, we see all around us those that reject Messiah, reject a Savior. They're trying to earn your approval by works. And Father, we recognize that our works are as filthy rags in your sight as you tell us. Help us to trust and believe on you and that that would be evident to the people around us. We pray now for the service that follows that Jesus would be honored and exalted through the message that is brought. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.